This is a humble man recording. Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Sky and Hayden King. Hey Hayden. Hey Courtney, how's it today? Uh, terrible. Oh, <laughs> today's a bit of shitty day. Shitty day. Traffic getting you down? Uh, yeah. And then also just like generally the news and everything that's been going on. Um, I work in a sector that just is repeatedly failing children and that is always has a very acute impact on me and I'm really just (sighs) trying to process that, trying to process what it means to like feel responsible for having a role and a position of responsibility when it comes to like making things better for kids. Right. That's, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's heavy. I mean, you are in a position where you're face to face with some pretty intense trauma on a daily basis. And mm-hmm. yeah, I can imagine that takes its toll a little yeah. bit. It's also one of the, what I would consider a frontier of jurisdiction and identity, right? Oh. I know that Yellowhead often talks about land and resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly there's nothing more political than the future of children. Yeah, so this is like a, a frontier of reclaiming jurisdiction over mm-hmm. children and communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that there's an interesting sort of distinction between your work and my work. And, you know, we're obviously both working for the community and trying to figure out how to best do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so much of my work is really like this high-level... Um, trying to influence policy and support communities with lawmaking and um, public education and it's often in in many ways like you're not distinct from the community you're not not apart from the community but it's like the people that I'm working with may be land defenders they may be chiefs trying to you know push back against federal legislation but it's definitely a different vibe than you know face to face with the just pure violence of settler colonialism that I think you deal with more regularly. Yeah, so it's just, it's been one of those days. Uh, <laughs> one of those days, so. Well, uh, the Leafs are doing all right. Yeah. We Aren't went, they? What are they? How are they doing? So, yeah, I'm pretty sure they won last night. I watched most of the game last night. I've missed the end of it. But, uh, yeah, we went to the... Uh, Leafs game on Monday night and went to their preseason game, watched fucking Montreal beat Toronto. <laughs> yeah, that was a tough game. They beat the Marlies, let's be honest. Like, they definitely... <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't we take our recorder to that game? Um, well, we're supposed to be about being on the Red Road. And I don't oh, know yeah, if, that's right. I don't know if yelling at the habitants is part of being on the red road it might be you know i feel like it's a a native tradition to yell at the canadians yes absolutely in all their forms exactly uh so so we're dating ourselves a little bit because this podcast is being recorded um about a week or so before it's actually going to be public yes Uh, so we are pre-recording one episode out of our usual rotation because you're going on a trip 
I am headed to Yellowknife, and I guess this, I'll be back from Yellowknife by the time this podcast airs, so it's a bit strange. The strange new world of podcast production. Yes, so it's a little bit out of sync. If there's something that's happened that's a bit more topical, um, then we might have missed out on it. But yeah, this is where we're at with our discussions. And it would rather, I think this is like a, we'll see this is a good compromise and anyone that's following along on social media, like please let us know, send us a tweet or an Instagram comment and let us know if uh, that's, I guess, yeah, if it's useful or not, or if we like, our takes are dry and old because, <laughs> and stale because it's an extra week behind. Yeah, well, this is going to be maybe the first podcast where we're not responding to some sort of topical issue in the news. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe it's like an interlude of yeah. sorts. Um, haven't we got a few questions from people trying to ask us what we... You know, they wanted to ask our opinions on... They, yeah, I definitely discouraged that because it was just some white guy and I didn't really (laughs) want to answer that question. Sorry if you're listening, but, um, I feel like there's, I, I definitely don't want to, like, cater to the white gaze and, like, have to explain cultural references and those kinds of pieces. Like, I feel like if there are, there are definitely, like, white folks that are in our communities that are connected that would understand the jokes and enjoy them. And if you're someone that maybe doesn't get it, then I don't feel like we should go out of our way to explain things to you. Maybe this podcast isn't for you. Exactly. Yeah, I I think we conceived of this podcast as being for Indigenous listeners, First Nation listeners, Mohawk listeners, primarily Nishnabek listeners. Primarily Mohawk listeners. I have no interest in... um, yeah, I was. I'm gonna be shady, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. Were you gonna chirp Nishnabek again? No, I was gonna chirp the Eastern Métis. Oh, <laughs> the Eastern Métis. Yeah. You know, we're just winging this podcast right now because <laughs> we're not re- choosing not to respond to topical events. But maybe we should get into the Eastern Métis. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know what? I could not. Uh, I could go without some trolling. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think I want to be, tro- be trolled. You don't want to be um, trolled by the Eastern Métis? No. Oh, my goodness. You know what it's like to be trolled by the Eastern Métis? I know you have been trolled oh, by the Eastern Métis. I have now twice, twice, I've had Eastern Métis folks try to get me fired from my job. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that's extreme. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I have to meet with lawyers over this bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't even know if the, I should be talking about this, to be honest with you, because <laughs> I could get myself into deeper shit with this yeah. wacko group of people. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, this is what happens if you are uh, an academic or activist or maybe just a regular person that decides to Tell chirp. the truth. <laughs> uh, chirp the Eastern Métis. They will come for you. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm not the only one. I think they come for many people, and they come mm-hmm. aggressively. Yeah. And uh, they're they're causing some harm, uh, for sure. Not yeah. only in actually shaping federal policy that may affect all Native people. I mean, somehow they're getting into these positions of power where they're getting, in some cases, federal recognition. They're getting standing at provincial and municipal 
policy bodies, they're intervening in, in public discourse, they're confusing Canadians about what indigeneity is, they're further dividing uh, notions of or conceptions of Métis identity, um, they're in some cases fomenting white supremacy, uh, they're furthering the divide that already exists between First Nations and Métis uh, people, at least in Ontario. So, um, yeah, that that's, is a long list. That's sort of a long <laughs> list that, that came off the top of my head at the, of the harm that these people are doing. They're stressing people like me out. Yeah. Um, and so, you have enough stress. <laughs> I, I've got some stress, but um, yeah, so it, it's, it's an issue. And I think that I don't know how this is going to end. I mean, you have people out there that are challenging them. You know who is challenging them? who is the dark knight of this issue and who is our hero on this issue. <laughs> so Romeo Saganash was the red road hero of last week and this and week we're going to talk this week it's Patrick Brazo. Oh my, what? <laughs> Have you heard about this? No, I haven't heard oh about this. Oh my gosh, Patrick Brazo last week uh, made an intention or some kind of like put something on the order paper to ask the government of Canada to begin to investigate these fraudulent claims of Métis identity. What? And so he's actually trying to get like a special committee or some kind of thing started where this kind of like, these gaps that have kind of been done in status, Patrick wants it actually studied. And so he's put this forward. This is like his first kind of like jump back into being a senator. Oh my goodness. Uh, I'm very conflicted hearing this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not really Patrick Brizzo as a clown. Yeah. But I'm sort of <laughs> I'm sort of surprised. Mm -hmm. uh, you didn't know he was your hero on this. No, he's going to be I, your champion. Thanks for letting me know who the Red Road Hero of the Week is. Yeah. Um, to be fair, it's me every week. <laughs> but no, you should go. You are and the hero of this podcast. You should go and look I'll at it. I'll take a look. Because I listened to um, I forget who it was Pia Chattopadhyay did a interview with Patrick Brazo. Um, on CBC, he's starting his like reclaiming of his reputation, and I was pretty upset. Frankly, I listened to part of it, and I was just not impressed. But um, he came back on my radar a couple weeks ago because of that, and so I kind of like started to follow him again and see what the hell he's up to because he's clearly trying to make an effort, and this is his, his thing. And if he's mm. going to be the one that deflects all of that, then you know what? I think he does need a little bit of, like, um, what is it? He has to show some kind of goodwill to try and reclaim some kind of credibility in the community. Oh, and man. He's going to, the Eastern Métis are going to ask the Senate to kick him out. And if there's one thing <laughs> we've learned about Patrick Brazo is he's not going to get kicked out well, of the Senate. Well, maybe this could be a win for us all. Yeah. But true. Two birds with one stone. We You're get rid right. of the Eastern Métis and Patrick Brazo. <laughs> I think the Eastern Métis are going to be harder to dislodge, to be honest with you. But uh, You think so? Actually, mm. you're right. They did try to kick mm. Patrick. I mean, it, it definitely demonstrates the weakness of mm. parliamentary institutions that you can't get rid of someone for, you know, pretty significant violence against women and mm -hmm. the host of other Hell, shady things that Patrick Brazo Canoe won the leadership. Of the NDP, mm -hmm. that, is, uh, that is correct, mm -hmm. yes. Um, mm -hmm. 
Well, we'll see where Patrick Brazo's initiative goes. Yeah, good old Patty Braz. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, what do you really do about these uh, these folks? I mean, I, I think that there's a, there's a legitimate question to be asked about when you stop being indigenous. So most of these Eastern like, Métis people... Yes. Um, I thought you were going to talk about Brazo. <laughs> You're like, we've disowned him. He's no longer indigenous. <laughs> uh, revoked his better. You know, I, hey, I, definitely. I'm sure I, there, he has. We have processes to banish people and revoke yeah. their membership. Um, an extreme step mm-hmm. in uh, Nishnabek and Algonquin citizenship protocols, but I, you know, I, I suppose that was possible. Yeah. But you're talking about when do you stop being. Indigenous. I mean, you stop being indigenous, maybe. Project Brazos crossed that line a couple times, but uh, for these Eastern Métis folks, you know, the foundation of their claims is that they have usually a single ancestor that is from 250, 300, 400 years ago. Um, And that ancestor is, of course their lineage is passed down the family tree to the present and and in some cases that person or that in some cases that woman is actually not even indigenous but they use that person to claim indigeneity and entire communities exist that trace their lineage back to the same single ancestor so you have effectively these new eastern metis uh nations what they call themselves are basically families Mm -hmm. Um, that come from a, of a single ancestor of questionable indigenous status. and mm-hmm. uh, So that's an issue. Yeah. And I think, you know, people like um, Adam Gowdry and Daryl LaRue have mm-hmm. documented this stuff. And, you know, Russ Dybo even in, in discussions of the Algon- Algonquins of Ontario. But um, I feel Kim, like, Kim Tarlbear yeah. as well. Yeah. I feel like this is like a very slippery slope for you to argue that I am not actually British. <laughs> I am a 3% British. Are you going to talk about your one British ancestor My one now? British ancestor. I have one British ancestor. His name was, um, I think, John Thomas. Definitely a Thomas. I have several grandfathers that are named John Thomas in his descent. And um, he was adopted by Mohawk people. So, like, culturally... He would be considered a Mohawk person. But I do have one great, 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 great grandfather who is from Britain. And I'm going to use this ancestor to claim my inheritance to the British crown. Well, hey, I mean, I see see what you're saying there. This is obviously... uh, weak argument that's being made by by some of these people but the the question that i'm trying to ask is all right so clearly that is not an issue i mean clearly it's an issue these people are not indigenous not first nation not metis not anything um but at what point do you say that your ancestry or lineage does or doesn't matter i think that one of the things that really struck home for me about this was I was in a teaching with Gertie Bocage and she was talking a bit about this and what real what I and I agree with her like what's truly offensive about these kinds of situations 
is that these people clearly have ancestors. Like, they have family, they have parents, they have grandparents that gave them some kind of culture and gave them some kind of value system. And that, their actual relations and their actual kin are being discarded. Mm. And that that is the most disrespectful thing about all of this, right? That they actually have some kind of like tangible culture that they could be practicing and they could be maintaining that is authentic to them, that is their inheritance, and they're just disrespecting it. Hmm. I, does it matter if there's a continuity of culture that it's passed on through generations or, you know, it had been erased for 200 years and suddenly these people are saying, oh, well, there there is a drop of blood there and there is a lineage there, so I have that right to resurrect uh, or try to resurrect what I think my culture is. I mean, at the, at the cost of the rest of your family, though, that's the thing that I kind of like is this. I don't know. I have such a hard time with like the the bloodism kind of thing too, mm-hmm. right? Because if you are you're talking about like kinship and relationality and like those, there there are people that are in your immediate, you know, your grandparents. Your parents, like those people are, who are they and what were their teachings? And if it's not this like, like not necessarily cult continuity of like that indigenous or reclaiming of like what they say is an indigenous identity, but like what else is there, right? If it's only that one person out of however many ancestors you have Uh, that many generation back, what are all the other ones? Right, 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 right. As, like, mixed-race people. And I think that's the thing, right? Where you, you're talking about, like, someone and their inability to exist in, like, a mixed-race identity. I think it's... I think for most of these people, that's all That's all who they are. They are They are all identify... You know, identify as Canadians and with, you know, probably largely French, Acadian, British mm-hmm. uh, ancestry and cultural inspiration... Um, but they perform this indigeneity yeah. for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, some of these groups are trying to displace uh, First Nations uh, rights and titles. Some of these groups are pushing against uh, legitimate First Nation hunting rights. Um, some of them are trying to shake down industry and governments for uh, uh to, to accrue wealth. I mean, some of these organizations are funded exclusively by um, private industry have, who have an interest in exploiting indigenous territories. And so I think a, a lot of this is all just bullshit. It's just, you know, uh, adopting this indigeneity to, to pursue a, a very dark political motive, uh, which is the same political motive that's existed in Canada mm-hmm. since fucking... Canada has existed, right? It's just to uh, erase and dismantle any authentic indigeneity. You know, I often lead with my comedy foot on social media, which I think has kept me from getting trolled. People will go to my account and see that I'm a comedian and not necessarily try and troll me, so I'm glad we have this episode to change that for me. (laughs) It's uh, too much? What do you think? No, I just... You know what? I... You don't even want to talk. You don't want to talk about this. Not because of the trolling, but just like talking about whiteness is boring. You're right. You're right. Yeah, it is. How did we end up talking about whiteness? We're trying. We we started this <laughs> we're podcast. About how we didn't want to cater to whiteness. We don't talk about whiteness, and here we are talking about whiteness. And okay. 
Well, I thought it was kind of a, an, uh, an interesting lead into a discussion about membership and citizenship yeah. and belonging in our own communities. Like it, mm-hmm. you know, the Eastern Métis bullshit is one thing, but we also have, uh, you know, Six Nations has some pretty serious membership citizen issues. My community does. Ganawage certainly does. I know that there's communities, uh, uh, Dene communities that are mm-hmm. trying to, to make it so that non, uh, non-members can't, vote or run in, in elections. I yeah. mean, so these are issues that we're grappling with as well. I mean, we we don't have as much of the fraud, yeah. although I, we do have some of that. But Well, the, um, and did you see in CBC today, they were coming that um, Mi'kmaq veteran or that lost their status and is on a hunger strike? No. Oh, so there's a, a someone that was a part of the, a former member of the Mi'kmaq and had their membership revoked and has been on a hunger strike for the past three weeks because as a veteran, he has PTSD and lost um, health coverage for his uh, PTSD treatments because of his status. Was he um, a Halupu? Yeah. And they revised their membership yep. qualifications? And yes. uh, I see. Yeah, so I I don't know a lot about uh, Halibu, so I'm not gonna yeah. really say much. But um, I know that's a bit of a mess. That's mm-hmm. a, for sure. And um, I mean, it speaks, as you said, to the material consequences of all this. And this is what I enjoyed the most about our podcast: is that we end up so far from where we started, which was literally let's talk about the leaves. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> uh, well, this is it's a, like a sips- free-flowing <laughs> conversation. I mean, I hope that people are yeah. being able to pay attention. Like, yeah. What are it's they like, talking um, about now? It's like six steps of settler colonialism. <laughs> it's like we could talk about any... Start off at any conversation point and talk about it and then somehow make it about race <laughs> and settler colonialism. Right. Yes. Well, yeah. That's the sort of the theme of our podcast, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well... Is it blood? Is it... <laughs> See, I'm just taking this right back there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I feel once we started the conversation, we can't stop it. But... Yeah, I mean, we could go further into it. I think I've been thinking <laughs> about it, too, since we started the podcast. And thinking, like, more... Trying to delve into these ideas and, and the implications of them. And taking them, like, you know, trying to think about them a step or two further than I thought about them before. And reflecting on my own kind of role, right? Because we've talked about kinship and we've talked about all these other things. And it's true, right? In Haudenosaunee culture, we've talked about, like, the clan system and the nationhood, and that matters, right? And I think think that there's, like, you know, there's been these questioning of people and their identity when they come to claim indigeneity or these people that are coming back to communities and trying to reconnect and and all these pieces because at the one time we were saying, you know, at some point we were saying, well, there's these people that don't belong because they've run out of indigeneity, but on the balance side, there's survivors of residential school and 60 scoop survivors that, you know, potentially hear this kind of language and then feel isolated and, and feel like they're not going to be welcome back Definitely. in their communities. And so I think that there's, there's kind of like a specific kind of cultural resurgence and, reclaiming of our communities that happens so in my specific example my family I've talked about before but my mom's side of the family very Anglicanized my dad's side super tradition 
Um, and because of that, when I was a child, when I was an infant, I was adopted by my dad's side of the family, culturally, into the longhouse. And so through my mother's side, they had kind of a confused identity and not necessarily keenly aware of their direct kinship within the clan system and knowing, you know, their clan mother. And there was a little bit of rejection of that because they were Anglican. My dad's mother, very traditional, very cultural, and she was the one who adopted me. And so I claim that, like, that is my identity. That was, that's the ceremony that I put through the longhouse. So I don't follow my mother's side. I follow my dad's mother. And that is because of colonialism, right? Like me being a Mohawk, me identifying as a Mohawk turtle as a part of my clan family, that's a reconstruction after colonialism. And mm-hmm. my, my mother, who is also Mohawk, but not from the same clan family, is always like, you know, like I don't think anyone would deny that I'm not like 110% Mohawk. But there's a a thing there right there's a a different kind of blip that's not how things are supposed to go if everyone was always healthy you know since forever and we were uninterrupted so I think that that's and I often joke like I'm technically half Mohawk my mother is Mohawk and uh, Tuscarora my dad is Mohawk and Huga so I'm half Mohawk Hmm. but uh, culturally right I'm 100% Mohawk because that's who I'm adopted by and that is part of the culture though right like for you to be able to go to ceremony for you to know where to sit for you to know who is going to do your medicines who's going to do your ceremonies you have to know who your clan is you have to know who and not just knowing that you're like a mohawk turtle but like what kind of mohawk turtle are you which clan family are you and that testing that question is incredibly complex for a lot of different people that they wouldn't know where to go and where to sit when they go in the longhouse. And so, it's and for some people, it's because they were taken. For some people, it's because they their family turned their backs and were dehorners and, you know, didn't want that life and, didn't, and purposely forgot it. And so, it's a different story for everyone. And I think what I've had a difficulty is, is that, yes, I could say, like, as a child, as an infant this wasn't done for me and I didn't know any better when I was a kid but now that I'm an adult and now that I'm in my 30s it's my responsibility now and figuring this out and doing that hard work is my responsibility no one else is responsible for it now it's me and I have a personal responsibility that I need to take care of now that is understanding what it means to be a part of that family and to be what we would what they would call borrowed right I think it's you're absolutely right when you're talking about people who have been alienated from this very rich and sophisticated protocol that you're talking about. But those protocols do exist, and that's for Nishnabek, it's the same thing. Um, but there are those protocols for people to have access to and engage with, um, and I think they are there for people that were adopted and people that were taken away from from their communities and for the um, thousands of tens of thousands of non-status uh, people. But it seems like the alternative 
has been, well, let's just make it up. You know, if we can't, if we can't figure out where we come from, if we don't, you know, reach back to the communities or to our relatives and actually connect with some real life group of people, flesh and blood, and understand what those protocols and start enacting those protocols and the kinship that you describe or the kinship that we have in the clan system among the Anishinaabek or, you know, in some communities, like my own communities, trying to get back to the clan system, uh, what we're left with is this artificiality that is coming to dominate the conversations about Indigenous citizenship and belonging and and um, if people... I don't know if it's for uh, I don't know if it's because it is all performative, if it's for a lack of not knowing where to begin, or if it's just uh, some strange attempt at piecing together pan-indigenous elements of indigeneity and saying that that's uh, a, a community. Th these processes are sort of happening simultaneously to the ones that you're describing. And um, I think for the people that really do belong or should belong, we have to figure out how to prevent this from happening. I mean, I know an elder, for instance, that um, she, she makes up clans for individuals. So, you know, often it's young people, often uh, they come to her and, you know, say, I've been so far removed from my community I'm just rediscovering my roots I, I you know I wanted some, a name and I want a clan um, and the elder in those cases might just make up a clan divorced from their nationality and make up a name that doesn't necessarily come from community and that actually does harm to indigenous nations just like what we're seeing in, with the Eastern Métis it does harm to the reconstruction of of protocols um, and undermines them and then we're left with this conflicting maze of indigenous identity uh, that I think is really coming into focus right now uh, and ultimately fragmenting the community so I think it, it needs to be addressed <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh, Good thinking, segment. I'm just Good thinking. Deal. I'm just yeah. thinking about where to go from here. Uh, yeah. So one of the. So when we're thinking about this reconstruction, and I think for you, there's much clearer uh, steps for my community. For instance, I, we're having this debate about membership and citizenship, and who belongs, and a lot of the time blood comes up it's you know why what qualifies you to be a member of our community well um you have to have you have to be you know some elders will say you've got to be at least half native some elders will say you got to be you know 100 blood quantum some elders will say you got to have uh four grandparents other elders will say you've got to have two grandparents um and then there's other elders and other community people that are saying things like well we should be more flexible, flexible, and adapt to all the sort of non-indigenous by blood or non-Nishnabek by blood people that now live in our community or are married into our community, um, and that means thinking through how to reconstruct our traditional 
belonging protocols and I think that that's it's a tough discussion to have because we we have been so conditioned by uh, the philosophy of blood quantum for so long yeah. that it it, it, it it's uh, and the definition of status in the Indian Act, right? And exactly. what does it mean to be status and lose status and regain and claim it? I keep coming back to like that extension to right of the white roots of peace and what does it mean to actually be Kahuyo and what does that you know, how is someone measured and how is their accountability done? And I keep coming back to the fact like if I were to have a child, that child would be Mohawk. That's who they would be. I don't care if their parent is white or Nish or Cree. That child is 100% Mohawk. That's it. Because that I'm their mother. We're matrilineal. And they could have blonde hair, blue eyes. They could look however or take whatever characteristics. But they would be Mohawk. And that's, as far as I'm concerned, the end of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, the same with uh, my kids. I mean, my kids are born into... Um, my community they're born into my clan um it's easy to say too right because you're a niche man i'm a hooded niche woman like that's how the system works right it's an easier answer right when yeah. that's how yeah. the system yeah. works yeah um it's more complex right when it's a hooded nishoni man how does he pass on a clan right right yeah or more complex if you're uh uh um Nishnabek woman and marry a non-Nishnabek or usually more problematically non-Indigenous man altogether. You know, where what what clan do you become? Do you go into the Martin clan? Do you take your grandmother's clan, your grandfather's clan rather? Um, and I think that, that that's that stuff. There's a lot of work to to address those issues, but it is easy, as you say, to say those things, and it and it is easy to slip into the reasoning that you know just I have children in there and it's not back in their eagle clan or whatever because that's where they come from and that's who their family is and they're going to be claimed by this family and they're going to be claimed by that community and they're going to be named by this community and supported and embraced by this community um, but then when we start getting further away from our communities I mean you live at Six Nations I don't live in Chimnasing. I live two hours away I'm there infrequently uh, these days, at least, my kids are there infrequently. Um, so, what are their obligations? What are my obligations? What are my responsibilities as a clan member, as a citizen, as a member of my community? Because it's not just, at least, Indigenous First Nation Nishnabek protocols tell us that citizen citizenship is not just about rights or entitlement, or this superficial saying, you know, of uh, Megizi and Dodem. It also requires obligations, and I think it's harder and harder to figure out what those obligations are when your the geographic distance to your community increases, and you start looking for community in other ways with less clear protocols of membership and citizenship. Yeah, so. This has been a, I guess, a typical conversation on the Red Road. Yeah. Just talking about this stuff. Yeah, we're talking about things. We are trying to figure them out. If there's a conversation that we haven't ended, 
um, that you're still trying to think of like, well, what about this or what about that? Then tweet at us and or, um, you know, whatever. Let us know what you're thinking. And if there's anything else. Except if you're Eastern Métis. Except if you're Eastern Métis, then I am not interested. You might as well be Anishinaabek. Oh. <laughs> that's the one that's getting in. <laughs> that's the one we're keeping. <laughs> We've done six endings. <laughs> we have to, get, have to just do one. <laughs> like <laughs> the 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 awful part about that is you're gonna cut out all the Mohawk jokes that I made, <laughs> just so it seems like you're getting all yeah. all of the Mohawk jokes you made. All of them. Sorry, you gave a half-ass attempt at one snarky comment and it wasn't even funny. <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> All right. Gawab Min Minwa except to the Eastern Métis and to the Mohawks. You've been listening to the Red Road Podcast created by Courtney Sky and Hayden King. Sound and audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud and iTunes. I've been driving in my Indian car to the pound of the wheels drumming in my brain. My dash is dusty.